Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Support for the Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn. Cole Hahn's shoes, bags, and outerwear go with you while you work your way to extraordinary. More at colehahn.com. In this episode, we feature Helen McDonald from a virtual Portland Arts and Lectures event from this past October. Helen McDonald is, and this is a dramatic understatement, multi-talented. She is a naturalist and an illustrator. She's a historian of science at the University of Cambridge. She has worked as a professional falconer, including as a falcon breeder for the royal family of the United Arab Emirates, and has assisted with raptor research and conservation projects across Eurasia. And of course, she is a writer. As a poet, she has published three collections, and as an essayist, she has published widely, including for the New York Times Magazine. Her 2016 book, H is for Hawk, defies any single label. At once memoir, natural history, literary biography, it explores grief and loss, the relationship between humans and animals, obsession, memory, myth, and history. It was also a huge national bestseller that spent years on the New York Times bestseller list. McDonald joined us to talk about her most recent book, an essay collection called Vesper Flights. In this collection, and in this episode, McDonald moves back and forth through topics ranging from scientists to swans and into childhood memories and then forward into an ominous future. McDonald skillfully links her own experiences not only with the natural wild world, but with a very human world. There is grief, to be sure, about the irreparable damage to this world in the sixth great extinction already in motion, but there is also, in all of McDonald's work, abundant wonder and beauty. A little later in the show, McDonald will be joined by the Oregon writer Elena Passarello. Here's McDonald, who spoke to us from her home in England. So it's a, a real pleasure to be here with you all, and I hope that in um, brighter times to come, I'll be able to see you all in person. Right now, I'm, I'm here in my house in England with a cup of coffee, and uh, before I start talking, um, I guess I want to make a confession. A lot of people recently have told me they're convinced I'm, I'm coping with uh, this grim pandemic by spending all my time wandering around in the countryside, taking solace from the natural world. And I've not been coping with the pandemic that way. I want to just confess to everyone that there's been a lot of sitting on my sofa, eating pints of ice cream, watching action movies and weeping. So I want to just put that there as a kind of, you know, to start with. So um, as uh, many of you know, um, my last book, Ages for Hawk, was a memoir about the sudden death of my father and how I dealt with that by training a goshawk, a very ferocious bird of prey. I don't recommend that as a way of dealing with bereavement generally, but it was a very instructive experience. Um, but my new book, Vesper Flights, is a collection of essays. And um, for years, the word essay would send me into a kind of blind panic. Um, I was the kind of child who never did their homework on time. I was constantly in trouble. 
And at university, it got worse. Um, I'll never forget the look on the faces of my tutors as as I yet again failed to produce the essay I was supposed to produce. The, the, the faces sort of turned to sort of exasperated frustration. But um, I've learned now, and I, I, I love essays to absolute distraction. They seem to me to do things that longer pieces of um, creative nonfiction just can't. They seem like exercises in fierce attention, uh, in love and wonder, um, and they're fashioned from those things. And I, I, I increasingly feel they're a little bit like what happens if I go for a walk and you kind of wander around and suddenly something will pop out from the kind of background blur of gray and green. It might be an eggshell or a, or a CD someone's thrown out of a car window that's glittering in the verge. and. Um, their inception seems to me those moments when you see these things and you kind of want to know why they're there and what they mean and, and, and what their wider significances are. And writing essays to me now feels a little bit like I'm puzzling something out with a reader. Um, not like I'm working on my own. They, they feel to me rather oddly <laughs> as if they're opening spaces for shared thoughts and they're not me lecturing to a reader or telling them what to feel or think. And these days, although I obviously still love writing longer books, um, I love essays more than anything. It, it feels a bit like my brain's sort of specially wired for them. And that makes Vesper Flights a very special book for me. And um, every essay in it um, tries to capture, I think, something of the astonishing texture and nature of the world around us. And um, the subjects vary from their essays on migraines, on deer collisions, on mushrooms and total eclipses of the sun, animal migrations. Um, there's the story of a, a, a refugee's real flight to this country after persecution at home. And I watch the uh, I watch birds from the top of the Empire State Building at night, which again is not a very usual thing to do. And I get pretty obsessed with swans. And some of these essays began life. Um, as articles and publications um, like the New York Times Magazine and the New Statesman, but many were written just for the book. I started to assemble these essays, and as I, as I put them together into this collection, something very strange started to happen. I began to see that they, it was almost as if they started talking to one another, um, because they all contained themes that I hadn't even realized in many places were there. And they were themes that seem now to speak really directly to our current historical moment. Uh, matters of belonging and exile, fear and wonder, hope and loss and grief and home. And, you know, we're living in exceedingly frightening times. Um, the climate emergency, accelerating biodiversity loss and the current political situation, I think it's made the book much more overtly political than Ages for Hawk. And I'm very glad about that. Um, I'm not a polemical author. I don't like telling people what to think or how they should feel. But I do think that if you do pick up the book and read it, there's a sense of urgency in its pages that I hope is contagious and I hope you'll respond to. It's um, We're living in pretty desperate times. And the book is, I think, in many ways about how to sustain hope at a time when it seems increasingly hard to do so. When I think of hope, I, I think of... Um, Mariam Kaba's statement that hope is a discipline and it matters most when it's hardest. And I think of um, Rebecca Solnit talking about hope too and how she says, you know, if you're, I'm paraphrasing wildly here, but she says if you're optimistic about the way things are going to go, you don't want to do anything, you know, you're, everything will be fine, you know. And if you're full of despair, you won't do anything either because you'll think there's no point. You'll just sit at home under your duvet. What you need 
is uncertainty to have hope. You have to prize out uncertainty from your notion of the future. And you have to believe that there's space for action that can lead for change. And she says, you know, to hope is to give yourself to the future and that commitment to the future is what makes the present inhabitable. And that's a, a, a sentiment that I think about almost all the time these days. So the book has got a lot of memoir in it too, though. It's not just um, essays on animals. And, and readers who met me as a grief-stricken, very miserable 30-something <laughs> will also meet me as a very small child, a very curious child covered in scrapes and grazes and constantly climbing trees and catching snakes. And also me as an angst-ridden university student with a pretty much constantly broken heart. And a 20-something living in a Welsh farmhouse um, full of leeks and rats and very eccentric co-workers. So you'll learn a lot more about my life in it. But what I want to do here is introduce you to some of the deepest themes of the book with a little bit of autobiography. I'm going to tell you the story of how I came to understand um, some very important things, I think, about the relationship between the natural world and humans and how those realizations have shaped the way I think and write. And I hope that this, in a small way, this personal story might shed light on how we see ourselves more generally and how we use nature to speak of things we cannot otherwise say and how stories about nature tend to be stories at heart that are always about us. So back, back, back. When I was five years old, my parents moved to a little house in the south of England on a, um, it happened to be on an estate owned by the Theosophical Society. I don't know if you know much about this wondrously um, strange 19th century kind of spiritual society, um, but there they all were, all the Theosophists. And my mom and dad were not only agnostic, but, but also pretty hard-bitten journalists. It was a really unlikely place for us to suddenly be sort of, to find ourselves. Um, and growing up there was this really unusual education. You know, people wandered around in their pajamas or sometimes, you know, there was a naked man once posting a letter outside my house. That was quite alarming, but quite normal for this place. There were meetings and fires and all sorts of esoteric goings on. But there were also Italian gardens and huge climbable cedar trees, ginkgo trees, parkland and ponds. And I sort of went feral in this place. There was a summer house across the road that apparently was a favorite of Arthur Conan Doyle. And our neighbors were, they were immense. They were all pretty elderly ladies. Um, one wore an Egyptian necklace that she'd been given by Howard Carter. And another kept a great orc egg in a drawer. Um, they all had pasts of luminous eccentricity and strangeness. A lot of them were refugees from Nazi Germany. Theosophy had been banned during the war and they made their way to Britain. And looking back on it, I think these elderly ladies had a huge impact on my life. You know, they, they were very privileged, many of them, but they had turned their back on the expected way that their lives should go. They just did what they wanted and they, you know, took new prisoners really. And, idiosyncratic and glorious. And, and they really made me feel that I could really sort of carve the life I wanted. I didn't have to do what I thought I ought to do. And I was very lucky growing up there because the park was kind of walled. It, had, uh, it was very safe. And um, I had a childhood there that was very unlike, I think, many childhood lives today. I, I, I could just run free across this sort of 50 acres. And what I did was look for life. So everything. I turned over rocks to look for bugs and I filled jars and aquaria with tadpoles and newts. And I spent a lot of time in this sort of meadow with my face pressed into the grass, you know, looking into this sort of tangle of roots and stems and looking at these tiny animals, you know, the size of a sort of, um, you know, punctuation mark crawling around. 
I wasn't an unhappy child, but I was quite a lone child. And what these animals did was really special to me. Um, they made the world bigger and more interesting. And I craved their company. And I, I learned all their names from field guides because I wanted to know their names the same way that I wanted to know the names of my friends at school. These small beasts expanded my home beyond the walls of my house and um, they made the outside, the natural world, seem a place of really complicated and beautiful safety for me. I think so many of the myths we have about the natural world or, or we hold about nature are about us testing ourselves against it, setting ourselves against it, defining our humanity against it. But this was nothing like that at all. It was a child's way of looking at the world. Um, it was a child's way of looking at nature. Um, yeah, also I had a big, big obsession back then, which was birds of prey, hawks. Um, all my friends had pictures of pop stars on their bedroom walls, like the Bay City Rollers and the Osmonds, and I had pictures of kestrels and eagles and stuff. And I, um, at one point when I was really small, I was so obsessed with birds of prey, I tried to sleep with my arms behind my back like wings, which didn't really work, it's quite uncomfortable. And I'm still embarrassed that I've, I've just confessed that again. Um, but I discovered there was a thing called falconry and I became a falconer and I flew hawks right the way through my teenage years. And then I went to university to study literature. I wanted to be a biologist, but I had no mathematical skills whatsoever. So literature it was, and I love books. And when I got there, um, the falconry stopped. Um, they, there was no time for those. I, I got into post-structuralism and libraries instead. And um, something happened there that was really important to me. And I, it seems almost sort of obvious in retrospect, but basically I learned how to properly read. Um, I discovered that books and poems were far bigger and deeper than they'd ever seemed before. And um, they weren't just stories or sort of things like songs. They were, you know, shaped. They had all this hidden information in them about the times and the places and the cultures and the societies in which they had been written. So I learned all that as I wandered around in black roll neck jumpers. I'm still wearing one, how embarrassing. And uh, I forgot about Hawks completely. But then they came back because when I left university after I had my degree, like all English students, I went to work in the in the Gulf states breeding falcons <laughs> and doing falcon conservation. No, I, um, I was really drawn out there. It was a very interesting time in terms of falcon conservation. So the conservation was of um, falcon species that were used or affected by Arab falconry. And falconry in the Gulf states is an amazing history. So basically what would happen is these migratory falcons would migrate from Central Asia to Africa every um, every autumn and they'd spend the winter in Africa, and they'd migrate back to their breeding grounds in spring. And as they flew, they'd be trapped by Bedouin falconers, and they'd be flown for the winter to catch food. And then they'd be released in the spring. It was a very sustainable, very beautiful kind of relationship. But what happened um, at this time was that the, the Iron Curtain had fallen, and suddenly there were a lot of falcon smuggling gangs that were just basically taking young birds from the nest in Central Asia and taking them, bringing them to the Middle East, and, and the wild populations were really crashing. It was a very grim time. So we bred falcons to try and lessen the, um, the toll on the wild population, and we worked with Arab falconers to conserve the birds. And while I was there, I, I kept seeing these big Western conservation organization initiatives to try and conserve these birds fail over and over again for one very, very good reason. And the reason was none of them really took into account the extraordinarily deep emotional and cultural importance of these birds to the people that kept and flew them. And I thought, this is something I want to think about. And I want to think about it really, really carefully. So I went back to university 
and I went back to the Department of History and Philosophy of Science, which seemed like a good place to be. Because some part of me had finally, I think, realised what my real subject was, and it wasn't English literature. Um, it was the curiosity of that small child who was watching insects in meadows. It was the curiosity of the question, you know, how do we use animals? How do we interact with animals? How do we see animals in the world? And I remembered all the ways I'd learned to analyse books and poems. And I determined that I'd use those skills to think really carefully about this new question. So I got really interested at this point um, in the cultures of nature surrounding, um, in, in Britain, around the time of the Second World War and just before. And I dug around in the archives, I went to the University Library, which is an amazing place. Um, it's full of, again, deeply wonderful eccentric people. There was a, a guy that used to sit next to me in the reading room who had a huge pile of concertina um, computer paper and he would just come, and amazing sideburns, and he would just pick a random book, apparently it seemed, and, and he would sit down all day and just very carefully copy it all out. And there was something about the way that he sort of did this that just was really inspiring. I'm like, you know, you can just sit and you can get really into something and it can take hold of you. Um, and I, this sticks to hold of me. So I, I started to look at all this science stuff and um, it was really interesting because I'm sure, you know, we all tend to think of science as this absolutely objective, dispassionate way to see the world. And of course, in its, in its practical sense, in theoretical sense it is, but, but in terms of the questions that it asks and the underpinnings of the science, they're hugely affected by ourselves, by our societies, just as much as the ways we see animals. So one of the people, for example, I got really interested in back then was a chap called James Fisher, who was an ornithologist, a very posh one. Um, and he just, you know, around the wartime years got really interested in a bird called a fulmar, which is like a little bit like a kind of a small albatross. And at the, the time they were spreading their range down from the north um, around the British Isles, mainly during the kind of fish, they were sort of eating the fish that had been chopped off trawlers. And he wrote this monograph on them that was, it's like the most wartime book imaginable. So he, he details their rapid range expansion, mile by mile around Britain. He talks about their encirclement and penetration of British coasts. And he requested military um, coastal command stations to look out for flying fulmars as well as enemy aircraft. And he even managed to persuade RAF reconnaissance training flights to photograph fulmar nesting cliffs as well. You know, it, it was really, really astonishing. And I think being very posh and well-connected probably helped him there. And in the book, you know, you read these sentences where he says, you know, they just keep coming. They keep coming there. I don't know when they're ever going to stop. Um, the whole thing is soaked in wartime invasion anxiety. It's as much about war as birds. And it wasn't just Fisher that did this. You know, the more I read about natural history at that time, the more fascinating it became. You know, the same things kept appearing. You know, bird migration became a really hot topic, or this notion of birds crossing borders was a big deal. I read about um, wartime British officers who were captured and kept in, in German prisoner war camps who spent the entire war obsessively watching small birds inside the camps that were nesting inside the camps, maybe watching them for like 14 hours a day, just taking notes about what they did. And then when they left, when they were released, they came back to Britain and campaigned against cage birds in a really extraordinary bit of projection, I think. I read of how in Norfolk, uh, Norfolk farmers who had just learned that the skylarks that sat in their winter wheat fields eating winter wheat came from Germany and they started shooting them um, and there were these big headlines in the local press saying, you know, skylarks that sing to Nazis will have no mercy here. 
So national and, and natural history got kind of really, really confused at this point. And, and the story that I love, I think, the most is, is about the conservationist Peter Scott, um, who founded the Wildfowler Wetlands Trust. So when he was in, he was in the Navy and he, as he left the British, British shoreline to go to war on the deck of a destroyer, and the grey English Channel with the rain coming down, he looked back at the cliffs of Dover and he realised that the reason he wanted to fight was to protect the ducks that nested in the reeds behind his house. Um, these, these duck species are found all over Europe, but for him they meant England, they meant home. And all over the, the place, you know, Julian Huckley, another scientist, said, you know, on the radio, he said an American landscape can look almost exactly like a British one. If you know your bird song, you will not be fooled. In order to really, really know what Britain is, you have to know the natural history. And even the most scientific ecology did the same thing. So Charles Elton, a very important person in the development of population ecology, um, wrote that um, ecological networks are very like the structure of an English village, you know, real Agatha Christie stuff. He said that when you see a badger, you should know its place in the community, just as if you'd said, there goes the vicar. Um, so what I was doing was, was, was just discovering again and again and again that when you talk about nature, what you're really doing is talking about yourself. And that was really thought-provoking for me. So, you know, nature lets us articulate and reinforce the stories that we tell about the way the world is. And they use nature to make natural, true, and self-evident things that are just accidents of history and culture. And the process is called naturalization because nature is always taken as the ultimate proof of how things are. And I think of often of, of Annie Dillard's wonderful essay, and I love Annie Dillard. I'm sorry, Annie, I'm gonna make a point here. Um, about meeting a weasel, um, which I think many people are familiar with. It's a very famous essay. And she sees this weasel and she sees this creature as being a being that kind of lives with the perfect freedom of a single necessity. And she says it's a kind of, you know, it's a kind of like a sort of Nietzschean creature that teaches us to grasp our one necessity and not let go. And all I could think of now when I think of that essay is that living weasels, they're more than this. You know, they're, they're not just beings of pure will and necessity. They, they have kits. They, they sun themselves. They, they're secretive. They're solitary. They, they play. They might have a hurt leg. You know, animals are always more than we want them to be. You know, while I was doing all this, I was going out quite a lot into the countryside around um, Cambridge and discovering that um, these marshland environments that I was in were really hard to watch birds in. They're, you know, they're all full of reeds and water. And I spent hours staring at these reeds through binoculars and didn't see anything other than little bits of birds. You know, they didn't look like the ones in field guides. They were little scraps. Um, and then I started to realize something, how, you know, how much we've, we sort of value looking over other senses in terms of our relationship to nature. And I began to see these birds, they kind of became creations over many, many, many separate incidents of seeing bits of them. So a little kind of like an eye stripe or a upcock tail or a wing bar or a little sort of slip through the reeds that was the end of a snake. And what that taught me, I think, was that, you know, we see animals as kind of cut out from their surroundings, but that landscape taught me this beautiful lesson that animals are really you know, the landscape and the, and the sightings of these creatures pleated them together until the animals came to be part of that landscape in a way that has really um, been, it's really affected the way I write and the way I think about the world. They're not just specimens in museum cases, they're animate parts of places and you can't really separate the two. So that was a really, really important realization for me.
And here's another thing. Um, I think we all tend to think that the countryside or, you know, the wild, if you want to call it that, although we have no wilderness in Britain, as you know, um, it's a very contested term. It offers us um, solace and refuge from persecution and judgment. It's a safe place. Um, but of course, it's not free of social meaning either. And, um, you know, deep down, I guess, I suspect I still struggle with this intuition that um, I am not a man, so I don't have quite enough authority to talk about the natural world. You know, it's not mine to talk about. Um, and it's just clear to me, you know, it's, as it should be to everyone, that there, there are so many voices about nature that we just don't hear. Um, some of the most extraordinary natural historians I ever met um, grew up in working class rural communities. And there's very little room for them today in today's cultures of, of nature appreciation, and even less so in, I think, nature writing, which tends to entrench this sense that the correct way to relate to the natural world is through kind of walking and distanced looking. So more than ever, um, you know, it's really, really important for us to hear more voices, um, and more diversity, more variousness in people writing about nature. We need to hear the words of black writers, people of color, people from marginal communities of trans and women writers. You know, nature is not a singular thing, and nor are we, and nor are the practices that take us to it. And the answer, then I don't know, there's a sort of answer to this question, and, and the question is the big Thoreauian question, I think, at the heart of all nature writing, or writing about nature, and that is how to live. And I guess I have some thoughts about that these days. You know, there's there's no one right way to look at nature. Um, we should fight with all we have for lives that um, are not like our own. I'm I'm like that small child again who was awed by it and adored by it and um, and adored it. There's a lovely line from um, Robin Wall Kimmerer's book Braiding Sweetgrass where she says, "What would it be like if you thought the earth loved you back?" That's really gone very deep in my heart. So we need landscapes that are buzzing and glowing with life, and we should learn to delight in a world of things that um, they're not like us, and love them because they're not like us. And I guess we have to mourn. So much is disappearing through habitat loss, pesticides, climate crisis, and things that make the world ever quieter, darker, and smaller. Um, we need to feel the grief, not dissociate ourselves from it. And we need to mourn to change ourselves, in the words of Frank O'Hara in his poem about the great Martinican poet Aimé Césaire, we need, we have to fight for what we love, not are. So get out there, you know, get out into the natural world, um, believe it's yours too, pay attention to it. Um, it's an astonishing place full of manifest wonders and beauties and sadnesses. And I think it's really important when you do encounter an animal to think really carefully about all the stories you've been given about that creature, because a lot of the meanings you're going to see in it come from your own experience, your own what you've read, what you've seen, what people have told you from you know nature documentaries, from books. Try and hold those meanings in your head and push them just a little bit aside and look past them to the animal itself. The real magic is that sometimes the animals can do that for you. And um, more and more, I, and I hope my book really captures this um, in its reading, that encounters with animals can be really serious magic. So I'm going to talk about this time when I, I had one of those moments. And I was in New Zealand, um, a long way from here, and I had gone out near Dunedin to this headland. 
I was walking up this sort of sun-crisped place up to the very edge by the sea. And these lovely birds welcome swallows were kind of carving these beautiful curlicues above my head. I felt very far from home. And I remember looking down and far beneath in a sort of pocket of salt water in the rocks. There was a whole sort of family of young sea lions porpoising and turning. It was great to watch them. And my heart was in my mouth because I think there are some things that you wait for all your life without even knowing it. And I'd come here waiting for one of those things and I didn't know whether I see it at all. And the sky was a sort of remote blank blue and the sea was very still and the air was even stiller. There was not a breath of wind. And out on the water, I remember watching a little fishing boat bobbing the size of a thumbnail. And I just waited and hoped and hoped and hoped. And then the wind came. And the wind came suddenly and it was a benison. Um, it rolled in off the ocean. And there in front of us, um, as with a friend, um, this little lump of white started to move and it raised these sort of awkward, I always do the bird motions, I'm sorry, I have to do them. Um, it raised these awkward stick-like arms and um, they're sort of covered in fluffy down and it started to kind of wobble them. And these wings had never flown, they didn't have feathers yet. And it looked like a sort of small child in a ghost outfit. And it was a young albatross, a hundred days old. It, for a hundred days it had sat there looking out to sea. And as I saw it, I thought of Theseus's ships, of the black sails coming home, and of Coleridge's albatross, and of Baudelaire's albatross, like a good literature student, and our imperial visions of global exploration, and romantic notions of solitude, and caught up with Coleridge's albatross was this biting sense of guilt at what we've been doing to the natural world. Because when big things happen, old things are always conjured along with the new. And the wind continued to blow, and we waited, and then the albatross came. The albatross came, and it was too big to understand. It was as if a dog were hanging in the air. It came in on the wind, its long knife-like wings spread, bowed like this, and its webbed feet out to act as kind of rudders. And it was the most astonishing thing. And as it curved in, it turned its head, and it looked at me um, with these mild Madonna eyes down this long squid-cutting beak. And I was absolutely lost for words. Its world was wind and sea and spray and salt and the uplift from rolling swell over the southern oceans. And it looked right through all the stories that I'd ever been told about the world. And the air shivered with its newness. Thank you. Ah. Helen, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, I feel, I feel so good after that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm so, so excited about this new book. I read it uh, as soon as I possibly could. And then when I learned we were going to talk to each other, I listened to you reading it to me over the course of the past week in audiobook form. Uh, your voice has been in my head all week and it's just such a pleasure to see you in person. It's it's really funny, Do, doing doing audiobooks is one of the funniest things. Um, I'm sure, you know, it's that thing where, you know, initially when I did the, my H's for Hawk, I really did believe that I was doing the world a favor because I just assumed that everyone else would pronounce the falconry terms incorrectly. And of course, what happened is as soon as I started recording it, I realized, to my horror that I've been routinely mispronouncing very common words my entire life and no one had ever told me. So yeah, it was oh, an no. education, yeah. I wanted to start out asking a question. Um, do you think 
the Vesper flights is in conversation with H is for Hawk in any way. I know you were speaking of sort of the difference between the memoiristic impulse and the essayistic impulse, but, um, and then you also said essays are this opportunity to be in conversation with other people, but do they, does it allow you to be in conversation with your earlier work? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, I think there are, I think I like to think of it as being kind of the flip side of H is for Hawk in the sense that it focuses much more on love and grief's always there because of course it is at the it is you can't help but 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 feel grief right now but i think yeah the flip side of of, of just intense grief is intense love and marvel and that that's kind of where i went with that and it picks up a lot of you know the 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 notion in ages for hawk that i made this you know the, the great mistake of of really sort of thinking that i was a bit like a hawk i kind of disappeared in my imagination into this the personality of a goshawk to kind of escape grief to become this kind of you know being that lived in the present that was powerful and predatory and, and you know hated people I, you know I, I use her as an excuse to become something else and i think that that very human maneuver is is something that i explore a lot more in in, in vesper flights and in very many different ways so yeah and also um you know the the, the character that was me in ages of a hawk was you know kind of a idiot really i mean she didn't know a lot of things and she made a lot of idiotic mistakes and in fact writing it felt like that you know because seven years had gone past since that time i could treat her like a character um, so there's a little quiet part of me that's quite pleased that I've got the opportunity to say some things that I believe now rather than I believed, you know, a decade ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so interesting that I guess when you make a memoir, uh, you settle on one presentation of yourself as a narrator and as a character. I love, I love that you call yourself a character. I think that's very true. You know, um, the writer has to separate herself from the person that she was when she had the lived experience because there's that's just the only way that you can move through. But then when you move on to smaller essays, a book that has excursions and interviews and uh, sort of quiet moments of observation, are you are you concerned with making the same person, the same speaker, the whole way through that process? Yeah, um, I think I can't help it. I, I am a you know, in many ways, quite, a, a, I guess, an introverted person. I quite like my own company, but I have no filter. You know, I just, I just, I'm hopeless. You know, I'll, I'll just, I'd, I'd be the worst spy in, in the world. I just tell everyone everything. So, so even though the, the style of the pieces varies, so some of them really are much more um, journalistic and some of them are more lyrical. Um, it feels to me like the kind of, I guess, I don't know how to describe it, the organizing consciousness, the voice of those pieces is fairly not static but it's fairly rooted in who i am um and i think that you know writing hawk was a lesson like that i was gonna be calling it hawk um ages for hawk was um when i started writing it i initially tried to be a lot more british about it i i, I sort of honestly assumed that people would like to hear about the hawk and they didn't they didn't really know about me and i tried to not not be i wasn't that i didn't dissemble as such but i i didn't talk about how i was feeling at the time which seems a bit bonkers really because it's a book about grief and I couldn't I couldn't the book just didn't work I couldn't get anywhere with it and then one day I realized it had this awful realization that I just had to be radically honest about how I was feeling back then and as soon as I realized that it started to flow so I think readers know and I'm sure you know I mean you know this readers know when you're being honest it's like the words become cut from rock and um that's something that I've tried to keep in, in Vespa flights. I think that's just the only way I can write is just 
always challenging myself, always thinking, you know, am I am I being honest? So and that's why, like, with nature writing, there's always a, a sort of a bit of a temptation to kind of pretend you know more than you actually do. So I've been known in the past to kind of come back from a walk and go, I don't know what that fungus was. I'm going to find out so I can tell everyone. And then I realized that that also was a kind of dishonesty and that the world is full of things that I don't know. And I think being really open about not knowing is not only a generous act, but also the reader can come along with you when you find out. So that's what I try and do. Oh, I agree too that, and I think this form that you've selected for Vesper Flights, the essay is the the form of not knowing, right? Like it's the form of, like you said, puzzling something out with with a, either a reader or maybe or your own reader or with the self. It, it seems like the venue to 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 make artful the the fact that that we're not experts, that we don't have all the answers, that cogitation is this sort of thing that makes us human and makes us people. Right. And, 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 you know, in, when I was sort of saying at the beginning of, of, of my talk that I, I was really bad at writing essays, particularly when I was at university, and it took me a long time to realize the reason for this. And, and it was because I was taught over and over again that the way to write an essay would, was to plan it out. So, you, you know, you'd, you'd know what you were saying in the introduction and you'd know what your argument was. And at the end, you'd know what the conclusion was. And I couldn't do it. It just became completely paralyzing. And I, I was fine in exams because, of course, in an exam, you just start you know, it's sort of panicky whitewater rafting feeling. You just follow the sentence down the page and you, you know, I used to work out what I was thinking as I read what I'd written. And that's how I think. And that's how essays work for me. So each one of them feels a little bit like doing a very exciting exam. And sometimes they don't ever, <laughs> they don't turn out about the subject I think they turn out to be about. You know, sometimes I write about ibises and it's actually about, you know, being at home. And sometimes I'll be writing about being at home and go, no, this is about ibises. So, you, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. It's quite exciting. Oh, yeah. I wonder, I, something that you said in your talk um, is sticking with me, this idea that um, puzzling out something uh, in the essay form with the reader. For you, when you make essays the best form in the world... You, uh, one of the values that you attach on it is the fact that you know there's a reader there and you guys are going to work on something together, which I do think is, is something that isn't in every single essay that I read. So this is very special to you. How do you find yourself injecting that into the essays as you put them together, the idea that you're going to be in this conversation specifically with the people who are reading you? It's, it's very strange. And of course, you know, in a really obvious sense, it's nonsense. You know, it is just me. <laughs> it's just me writing. There's no one else there. But um, it's very strange. It's not. It's not a particular person. I mean, everyone writes to different to for a different audience. I think sometimes I think many people write for themselves or a past self or a kind of imagined future self or maybe you know their parents. Um, <laughs> and 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 for a long time, I sort of thought that I was writing to my twin. You know, I had this twin brother who died just after he was born. And I, I often thought that I was writing to that imagined sort of other part of me. But no, it's readers. And it's a kind of a sense of vulnerability that I have to enter into that is exactly what I was saying, I think, in some ways just now. It's like, you know, I don't know what this thing is. Can you kind of hold my hand and come along with me while I find out? That's how it feels. And, um, you know, I think it might in some cases, if I push it too far, end up with me just honestly looking like a fool. But I, I just believe that we're all deeply, um, you know, being an expert. There are some wider political ramifications to the notion of expertise right now. But I think in terms of um, just reading someone else's mind working as they try and puzzle something out, I think that always feels like a, 
like a move you can stand with and walk with rather than being told what to do. I mean, that, that's right. It's very incoherent. I'm not doing a very good job of my talking out. It's a bit like that thing I was saying about my writing. I never know what I'm going to say until I hear myself say it. And sometimes I say it and go, Helen, what, what was that? <laughs> but I think that makes sense. Oh, it totally hear, I does. I no, I think a, I see a cat's tail wandering behind you. It's one of the cutest things I've ever seen. So hi, cat. This is cute. Yeah, she's a, uh, I was so excited. Actually, this is actually a decent transition. Um, I was so excited to see in the book that you were, you were writing about Maxwell Knight, who is the inspiration for M in the Ian Fleming, James Bond novels, because her name is Q after Q in the James Bond. Fantastic. But anyway, um, can we talk about this essay, uh, the cuckoo essay, uh, which is one of my favorites in the book about Maxwell Knight. And um, I don't know, could you tell us a little bit about it and sort of uh, when and why you decided to include that in the project? Yeah, I kind of wrote, wrote, wrote that a while ago. And um, it was one of those, again, an essay that was uh, really sort of pitched into existence by coming across a book by this man, Maxwell Knight. And it was called A Cuckoo in the House from like the 1950s. And it, and it was um, a book I'd had as a kid and I just read it and thought it was a bit rubbish. It was about this guy who had a baby cuckoo and reared it. And... Um, you know, I didn't, it wasn't that good. It wasn't like Gerald Durrell, you know, it wasn't like, you know, the all creatures great and small. It was kind of boring. He just ra raised it and then it flew away, you know, whatever. And then I realized that this Maxwell Knight wasn't just some random old man in a tweed jacket. He was once one of the most important people in the British intelligence services. He was the model for Q, um, for M, sorry. Um, he ran a lot of agents and uh, was a very interesting character. So, so, that, uh, yeah, I mean, some of his things, he used to write terrible thrillers. He was an amazing jazz player. He was into black magic, you know, I mean, it was pretty likely he seemed to be like, a, you know, secretly queer. He had all these kind of like um, companion women who were always baffled that they never really managed to get it on with him. You know, he, they were always like, I never understood it until that time I saw him with the motorcycle man. You know, it, it was all kind of stories like this, but he kept animals compulsively. And there are stories about him turning up at like, you know, the intelligence services offices with kind of snakes in his pockets and stuff like that. And um, he wrote this guide on how to train agents. And I managed to get hold of some excerpts from it. And it was hysterical. It was exactly like he wrote about how to train animals. You know, you need this distanced kind of trust. You know, you don't want to get too close to them, you know. And um, there's this amazing wider kind of cultural um, match between espionage and, and, and natural history, as you know. I mean, that you know, the, the old spy splang for, for spy was Birdwatcher and all these things of like hiding in bushes and looking through binoculars and kind of, you know, it's, it's, and it was a very common, you know, excuse for field agents. You know, I'm just, I'm just a birdwatcher. But um, this whole thing about you never, never get too close to them. And then this, this thing happened. He was given a cuckoo to rear and all of those kind of, all that you know, protestation of never get too close to your animals completely fell apart because, of course, this cuckoo was the greatest penetration agent known, you know, in the natural world. These birds, like, stake out nests, they lay their eggs in the other nests, you know, and then they, like, disappear and, you know, they, they, they look like hawks, they kind of live their cover. And, you know, you read this book and you see this man falling deeply in love with this bird, who's, which is basically his own idea of himself. It's, it's an incredible thing to, to, to read. Um, it's still a very bad book, but he's an amazing character. I just love that. And it's, it's like a double agent situation because we have, we have put so much of human nature on what a cuckoo is, even back from 
Pliny the Elder forward that it has to do with this sort of, you know, fear of being cuckolded and this is, this is, it's bad mothership, right? They're terrible mothers, cuckoos or whatever, uh, Ogden Nash. But then in, in your essay, uh, you take a person who has been kind of doing that and then you put it back onto the project. So there's, there's even a little bit of espionage in there. I love that it's his cover. Um, that's one of my favorites. Um, but speaking of bird watching, I couldn't help but think about how this, many of the essays in this collection involve birding and bird watching. Um, and the first book, of course, is about falconry. And I wonder if it seems like you have occupied both positions in your life. And how does it feel differently? How does it feel different to be someone who is writing about being a birder versus somebody who's writing about being a trained falconer? Um, it's, it's different. And, and interesting, that's, there's some interesting cultural differences there. So um, in Britain, there is a, I, historically, there's been a much wider division between falconers and birders. So the kind of birding tradition in this country, or bird watching, as we call it, um, tends to be quite, um, it's generally quite a working class, has been quite a working class thing. It's also been something which, um, it's been allied to a certain kind of sort of scientific naturalism. And it's also been kind of set very much against kind of hunting culture, which is much more kind of posh and involves landed gentry and people like that. Um, so falconry is very much hunting in Britain, and there's a lot of distrust between falconers and birders for that reason. In America, there's been a much, much closer relationship between those two um, disciplines, I guess. And and um, so a lot of the raptor biologists in America have been falconers. And, you know, there's a sort of general sense, I don't know if it's still the case, but there was a sort of general sense that you know, falconry is kind of the ultimate form of birding. It allows you to be close to an animal that's behaving as a wild animal. It's flying free. It's doing what it does in the wild. Only you don't need binoculars, right? It's it's right there. So I think it's really fascinating that that you know it's such a clear example of how social history can completely impact the way that we think about the ways we interact with the natural world. Um, I have had angry comments from birders, and I've had angry comments from falconers, and I have had people refuse to believe that I can do both. Um, trust oh, me, really? trust, trust me, honey, I can do, I can do both, but it's, it's a fascinating area. And, uh, I think those kind of, um, boundaries between acceptable and non-acceptable ways of interacting with nature are really interesting places for me to look at. And when I was a historian of science, I spent a lot of time being really interested in, um, what's called boundary work in the sciences. And that is how do you police those, you know, how do you differentiate science from non-science? In many ways, it's very easy. If you're doing physics, it's kind of easy to know which is and which isn't. But if you're going out with binoculars, watching birds, you know, that's kind of what, you know, ornithologists do and what ethologists do. You know, how do you sustain those boundaries? And there's a lot of really interesting work on, on that particular phenomenon. Uh, why is it important or why is it becoming less important to establish those boundaries of when you're doing science and when you're not? I think, um, so the, the, the case I was looking at was the early days of the um, animal behavior in the field studies of ethology. So, you know, um, so for many sciences, you had a situation where the technologies of science or the spaces of science were extremely obviously professional. So laboratories, you know, particle accelerators, I mean, they wouldn't have them then, but you know, that's, that's science, right? If you're an ethologist, what you're doing is wandering around fields with a pair of binoculars, and there's no way you can really differentiate yourself from a birdwatcher you know, except, you know, you write papers or you you tell people, I'm a scientist. There's a lot of anxiety about your disciplinary status, your epi epistemological worth. 
So um, if you if you read people like Conrad Lorenz and and um, Nico Tinberg, and there's a lot of talk about how ethologists' brains become black boxes that are calibrated by long exposure to organisms. So basically, they say if you watch birds long enough, your brain will become like a computer, and you will you will become a proper scientist. So it's it's really interesting these kind of maneuvers. Wow, oh that's great. Um, one of the things that I marvel at in both the memoir uh, H's for Hawk and in this essay collection. Um, is how gigantic the subject matter that you tackle is. It's kind of like that albatross that you mentioned in your talk. It's almost too big to understand, right? It's like a dog in the sky. Um, so there's like unique personal grief with the memoir and the sixth extinction through which we're all living with the Vesper flights. What are your strategies for working with such gigantic subjects so that so that you finish, right? So that you don't get too overwhelmed and also so that the readers can come along with you in that conversation that you seek. Wow. Um, I guess that, that I can put that down to, I think, my training as a, um, I want to say jet pilot suddenly. I don't quite know why I'm not a jet pilot. My training is a historian of science. So um, one of the problems that I, I remember working with many students and that wanted to write about particular topics that were kind of big topics, huge important topics was that they would try and do way too much in an essay you know the, you can't you can't write about everything it's not possible so what the advice i used to give them eventually was to say look you know the way to write about something very very big is to focus on something very very small and then pull it apart there's a you know there's an amazing um book for example about a whole book a monograph like a, a work of great cultural history about a, a music, like a music box, like a tiny music box and like its place. And it, and it sort of unfolds from that into this whole disquisition on that particular period in European history. And in fact, I'm, I'm going to be doing that, I hope, with my next book, which is about, um, it's about the end of the world and being a woman and uh, in her 40s and being a crazy cat lady only with parrots, not, not cats and, and, and the US military and, and, you know, plastic pollution and climate change and everything, right? It's very eschatological, but there should be jokes. The only way I could do that was to focus on something small. So that's going to be about Midway Atoll, which is this two square mile kind of tiny island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And that's, you know, you need those small things in, in order to kind of anchor someone, in order to bring them out and show them larger things. And that's what I try and do. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for, for the conversation and for the inspiring, incredible, hilarious talk. It's been a deep pleasure. You know, I'm a huge fan of you and your work and it's just like an absolute joy. So thank you so much. And I'm so thrilled to have, have been able to do this. Thank you. That was Helen McDonald from a virtual Portland Arts and Lectures event in October, 2020. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Join us next time for the Archive Project a literary arts production in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more from the Archive Project, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Support for the Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn, on a mission to fuel your big ideas. More at colehahn.com. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori for radio and podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to Joy T. Roy and Alana Phelan and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here. <laughs>